Um, one of my friends told me a story this week about a family in Charleston whose home burnt down. Everyone made it out safely under the lawn, but as the family was gathered there, the mother kind of snaps out of it and runs back into the burning house. She had to get something. Can you imagine what she would go in to get? What would you go in to get? The house is burning. What would compel you to run back into a burning home? Um, You probably guessed it. But the lady went back inside of her house to get the box of family photos. I would imagine, how many of you would do this? Maybe the box of family photos. This might come as a shock to some in the Instagram shutterfly generation where our photos are safely stored in the cloud for the entire world to see. Doesn't matter though. But before the age of digital photos, people went to great lengths to protect their memories, their, their history, their photos. Because if you lost your family photos, you'd be cut off from a, a real part of your history. Obviously, you still have a history without the photos, but you know how the family photo album jogs your memory. When you get to see that dog again, and you get to see the smile on your grandmother's face, and sometimes you just need to go back through those pictures and remember who you are. If, if you lost your history, who are you? You're cut off from your identity. So our photos recall our history. Our history shapes our identity. This is why, if you want to join our church, you come to the Explore Alliance class. You know what we're going to do the first week you get in there, after we get to introduce you and, and know everybody? We're going to open up the family photo album, figuratively, and tell you about the 1978 Bible study that started this whole thing. But the group of men and women that wanted, they were hungry for the word of God. So they met in the home ec- building at, uh, at, at App State, and they gathered around the word of God. 39 years later, we look a lot different, but we are still gathering in this room hungry for the word of God. That's who we are. And so when you want to join and want, want to walk with us in the future, we want to tell you a little bit about who we are. We gather around the word because we're hungry for it here. Over the next two weeks, I want to pull out the family album, family photo book, and, and, and go back to the beginning. And no, I'm not talking about the 78 Bible study, though I bet we could fill a couple of Sundays talking about that. The Pilkingtons, Parkers, Dowell, the Dowell, Zola. She, I'm sure she would have a lot of great stories for us this morning, but I want to go back a, a little bit further, actually to the very beginning. The first family picture of the church. You can find this picture in Acts chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn open and we're going to look at the first group photo of our spiritual grandparents. We're going to study them over the next couple of weeks. Now, as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context to understand the book of Acts. We... Um, when you come to Acts, you, you remember it's written by Luke. He's giving this account to Theophilus, and there's too much information to him for him to put in to this massive story. And so what he'll do is he'll zoom in and tell very important stories and zoom back out and give these really nice summary statements to move the narrative along. There's too much to tell, so this is kind of what happened. We're going to study that um, today, but before we do that, we need to look at this really detailed story what, that, that he explains in Acts chapter 2. You may be familiar with this, but the Apostles, they were waiting in the upper room. It had been 10 days since Jesus had left them, ascended. 10 days without the Son, 10 days without the Spirit. The emptiness is very real, but suddenly the Spirit descended. It shook the room, tongues of fire landed on them. People from all nations understood them clearly. And Peter stood and delivered one of the most powerful messages in the history of the church. Word-based, Spirit-filled, and 3,000 people were cut to the heart. I love that. They were cut to the heart. They were undone. What do we do? Repent 
and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. This is the story that Luke told in depth. We should read it, get into it, but we're gonna zoom back out and look, what do they do next? After 3,000 people were scouring Jerusalem and the apostles finding every pool of water they could find to baptize these new converts that come out of that, what, what do they do next? Luke 2 tells us, or Acts 2. Luke is the author, Acts 2. We're gonna begin in 40. So let's read 40 to 47. If you have your Bibles, follow along as I read this text. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith of our ancestors. The Spirit came and they listened. They obeyed. They received him. They repented. They were baptized. They formed into a new community, a beautiful community, and started a movement that the devil has not been able to stop. And so, Lord, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that we would have the same faith to receive the same spirit. Would you open our hearts to receive your word today? Would you move in us in a very powerful way, Lord? I pray that we would, um, that the spirit guide us into a, a new community here. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the summary officially begins in verse 42. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you probably have a, a break at 42. But we're starting in verse 40 because this is an important bridge from the detailed story into this summary statement. Listen to verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them. So I was unaware actually until I started studying this week that Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two is not really the entire sermon. This is often the case with sermons in the Bible. Luke is essentially saying, the guy said a lot. I don't have time. I don't have ink to write down everything the guy said. He's long-winded. So I'll just summarize it in this very, one very powerful line. Here, here's the theme of Peter's message that day. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's what Peter told him. In other words, you've received the spirit. Your lives must change now. You must look different from the crooked world. Save yourselves from it. Now, I'll be honest, this is strong language. And five years ago, this language would have embarrassed me a bit. Come to the end of this powerful gospel message and then you get to verse 40 and you're like, oh, Peter. Peter being Peter. Sticking his foot in his mouth again. That's strong language, Peter. Don't you know, you just had them with the gospel. They were cut to the heart. They were repented and, and, and they're repenting. And now you've got to go and say, pick up your bullhorn and go street corner preacher routine. Save yourselves from this crooked world. Like, don't you know, Peter, that people are going to be offended with this language? That's too strong. Well, maybe five years ago. Of course people were offended. At 9 a.m., people were accusing him of being drunk. There's always gonna be people that don't like the gospel message. And yet, here's the reality. 
there were a lot of people that were hungry for that message. The very next verse, verse 41 said, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day, oh, about 3,000. It's a lot of people that heard that word and responded. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Church, I think it's time for us to embrace these words. Can, can we agree that the world is crooked? I got a hearty amen in first service. <laughs> Only amen I got. I'm like, okay, let's. There might've been a debate five years ago. I don't think there's a debate now. We just, we live in a world of lies. It's crooked. And if that language doesn't sit well with you, just read through the book of Luke. Jesus uses that language at every, this is a crooked generation. It's crooked. And so here's my question. Why would the church of Jesus Christ bind itself to a dying and lost world? Not like a, not like a nurse or a doctor, but like a lover. I need you. I need your approval. Why would we live like that? The message is save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is exactly what the Jerusalem church gave the world, a new alternative. And they were hungry for it. People are starving for this. The spirit guided them into a new community that radically shook up Jerusalem. We can, we can see this dynamic the dynamics of this community in Luke's summary beginning in verse 42. This is how they went about saving themselves from the world. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They had new values, new habits, new lifestyle, new rhythm. They, they just had a different hum to their community. It was a community of human beings created in the image of God, living as God had created them to be. We could spend a long time dissecting these four elements, but this morning and next, we'll hit another one of these elements, but I'm gonna zoom in on one feature. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the koinonia. This is not an arbitrary selection. Luke zooms in on himself. In verses 44 to 45, he gives us a definition of what it means to, to devote yourself to the fellowship. Verse 44 and 45 shows us. Let's read them again. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is the life of the church. It's a beautiful text. Luke is gonna show us the values of the, of the community before the community had really been formalized or structured or established, before they had hammered out the doctrine of the church, before they had said, you know, when are we gonna do this thing? Sunday mornings? Where are we gonna meet? Before they had any of those questions figured out, this is what they did. They were baptized into a radically new community of people that were living out the teachings of Jesus through the power of the spirit. They weren't baptized into a Sunday morning commitment. They weren't baptized into a 10% tithe. If you think that, you're missing the point substantially. They were baptized into a new community and this touched every part of their lives. So it's a beautiful text. And yet it's also very unsettling. What are we to do with this? How should we read this? More important, how should I preach this? When you come through Acts 2 in your Bible reading, how do you interpret it? Is Luke simply describing the church as it was or is he prescribing the church as it should be? This is a very important question. In fact, if you were in Connection Group 3 this semester, Roy went through that teaching with you. Is it descriptive or prescriptive? It's a very important question. Some people read the book of Acts and they get really passionate about doing things exactly like you find them in Acts. We gotta dress it up. We gotta do things exactly here. So let's meet in homes. Let's do this. And 
We're just going to match it. Since we're talking about this as being kind of a family photo, this reminds me of the internet trend, um, the recent internet fad of recreating family photos. Have you ever seen one of these? Kind of creepy. They always make you laugh because you've got like these baby photos of the kids in the Superman PJs and now they're in their 30s and they're bald and they put on the Superman PJs and they do the same pose. It's kind of weird. I don't think we should do that when we approach the book of Acts. Okay, here's a good family photo. We got to do things just like they did. We're going to be full grown walking around in our PJs. That's not how we need to act as a church, okay? Um, they met in homes because they hadn't built buildings yet. There's certain features here that um, the church just hadn't developed. It matured. Even through the book of Acts, we find a maturity happening in the body of Christ. And that's okay. We need to be all right with that. 21st century church in Boone will look different than first century church in Jerusalem. And that's okay. And yet there are certain values, virtues, and habits, and rhythms that should define the church throughout every age. A gospel-shaped community might have a different feel and look in different parts of the country or different parts of the world, but it will always be shaped by the gospel. You understand that? A gospel-shaped community might look different, but it will always be shaped by the gospel. And so when I come to Luke 2, 44 to 45, I see three elements. We don't have them here, but I'll say them a couple times so you can listen to these and get these. Here, here are the three elements in their community that I think speak to us today. First, they met together. Radical, groundbreaking. Verse 44, they met together. Second, they lived a common life. They shared, in other words. Third, they used their possessions to eliminate needs. They met together, they shared a common life, they used their possessions to eliminate needs. This is what sustained the church instinctively in its first days. We can't move on from these values. Let's explore them. Here's the first one. The, the believers frequently met together. I think Luke puts this in here for a very specific purpose. It, it seems obvious, but it's not really obvious in our modern world anymore. We need to be together. I think our modern world, we believe that you no longer have to be together to love somebody. Does that make sense? Facebook has kind of divided the actual physical presence with care and concern for one another. Well, I have 2,748 friends, right? Do you love them all? Facebook wants you to believe that you can. You can't. I believe that our fascination with technology is severely hindering our desire and even our ability to actually be together. It's hindering our desire and our ability to be together. This attitude has infected the church as much as the outside world. Listen, I understand why. Our phones have made our life great. I read somewhere today that I have more processing power in my phone than Apollo 11. <laughs> That's... That's life-changing. Like, I hope you understand that. This has changed our lives in a, in, a, in a variety of ways. But there's a payoff. It's taken something from us, and we gotta, we gotta wrestle with what it's doing to us. Um, there's a lot of research coming out. I'm not gonna get into all that. Here's one thing that I think is fairly intuitive. Technology is making us lonely. John Hanna, one of the elders here, lent me a book last year called Alone Together. We're together, but we're alone, really. And this is the subtitle. Why we expect more from technology and less from each other. It's like we just don't need people anymore. I got my phone. I got everything I need. When I walk around campus, I'm shocked that I don't see more people running into trees and posts because <laughs> we get out of class and it's like, distraction. I don't have to talk to anybody. When I was in college, we ripped out the flip phone and we'd call each other. And we're popping into stuff now. 
we're addicted to distractions, right? If I need something, I'm not gonna meet up with you. I'm not even gonna let you hear my voice. I'll just text you. And even, listen, even that's in danger. Last week, Pat Strickland, our worship pastor, and CJ Henshaw, we had a three-day conversation exclusively using GIFs. You know what GIFs are? The little video images? It was so funny, and it's like, part of me thinks, man, we have arrived. (laughs) I think the loop is about to come back to caveman status. We don't even talk anymore. We just send you pictures of emotions. We're just communicating in little pictures on our walls. That's not good. We're beginning to prefer our devices over flesh and blood. It's just easier that way. It's not good. As, As smart as Siri thinks she is, she doesn't know me. She doesn't love me. So when I see this statement in the church, in in Acts 2, that the church met together, I think it's fairly revolutionary. I think we need to hear this. This is a gospel issue. We can never replace flesh and blood relationships with technology. Tony Reinke has an excellent new book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Lots of stuff like that coming up. Andy Crouch, TechWise Family. These are good resources. Check them out. But Tony Reinke mentions this gem from 2 John 12. First time I've ever mentioned 2 John in a message. I'm kind of proud of this. It's quite appropriate. John is writing to the church and he says, I have a lot to write you, but I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. You gotta remember that John was there in this family photo. He's there with Peter and James and 3,000 other people. He remembers what it was like those early days. And so when he plants his church in Ephesus and he's now writing them letters, which becomes scripture and, and, and changes, he understands the value of technology. He employs technology, but he tells the Ephesians, I just wanna be with you. In fact, 2 John's gonna be so short because I just gotta get with you I, because that's where my joy is complete. So yes, we should employ the technology that is available to us, but that we we should also remember technology is limited. We don't have a projector this morning. (laughs) Point proven. Technology will let you down. We should employ the technology that's available to us, but it's limited. I saw a well-known pastor tweet this week to his hashtag EFAM. If we call this the church, we're deceiving ourselves. There is no e-body of Christ. Understand that? We have to meet together. So let me summarize the first point. I'm not suggesting that we burn our phones at the end of this service. Half of you wouldn't even know how to get home if that were the case. So <laughs> let's hang on to our phones. But hey, here's, here's the thing. Can we have the conversation? I just want to start a conversation. Maybe this, maybe this is doing something to us that is not good. Maybe this is a gospel issue. How sad would it be? I just had this really awful vision this week that somebody else is going to lead us out of this madness and the church is too busy texting and deluded to even notice. I read this week that Steve Jobs didn't even let his kid use an iPad. It would be a sad day to let technology destroy Christian marriages. We just sit in the bed and the glow just drowns us out. Don't, please stop. They destroy our families. Let's learn how to meet together and be flesh and blood. I'm not telling you how to do this. I'm just saying, start the conversation right now. Let's fight for our joy. We want our joy not to be partial. We want our joy to be complete because we have the spirit of God inside of us. And so let's show the world how that we love each other, how we, how we, be, how we uh, come together. 
it's a gospel issue. Verse 44, let's, let's go on to the second point. They met together, but they also had all things in common. In other words, they didn't just get together, watch a movie, and go back to their lonely lives. They began to knit themselves together into a tight family. If you flip over to Luke 4, there's actually another summary. You might want to acquaint yourself with this one at the end of Luke chapter 4. Zooms in, tells a story. Luke 4 zooms back out and develops the theme a little bit more. He says that the full number of all who believed, at this point 5,000, were of one heart and one soul. Do we share a heartbeat in Alliance Bible Fellowship? When you walk past people, do you, do you like, do you have this understanding that I am in this with you? We share a soul. I understand we're a big church. Thousand, we're 1,100 people this year. Biggest we've ever been. You're like, yeah, we can't do that at a big church. I don't know everyone's name in this room, but the church in Jerusalem was 5,000 large in just a few days. I'm sure they didn't know every name, and yet when they looked at each other, they just had this understanding, we're in it together. Why? Because they had all things in common. They were a genuine fellowship. This is the root word, koine, for koinonia, fellowship. They shared their stuff. Again, you're like, this is just, this is for children. It's not, this is a gospel issue. We have a lot of forces working against us, and that should be our first red flag. If the world desperately doesn't want you to share things, think about that because there might be something valuable in sharing things. We have a lot of forces. In just the past um, few years, we've been trained to think that sharing is evil. Even the early days of technology, we had to figure this out. There was one television. I remember these early days. You had to pick football game, Wizard of Oz. What are you going to pick? Sometimes me and my dad won. Sometimes the ladies got to watch Wizard of Oz. We had to pick, we had to share. Hopefully, they, they, they led to compromise. You had to work these things out. Sanctification, hopefully, again. The internet, you had to share the phone line. My sister's making a phone call. I'll wait to log on. Even in the early days of tech. But we don't have this dilemma anymore. We have all that we need. And if you, listen, there is a simple solution. If you don't have what you need and you have to be waiting, buy it. Just buy it. Like that's the only thing that technology is developing now is the stuff that like, okay, where are four seconds in your life that you have to wait? Let me create a device so you don't have to wait those four seconds. That's changing us. And that's not good. Watch the advertisements closely. They're leading the charge on changing our values. The family's in the airport waiting room. The mother, here's yours, here's yours, here's yours. You don't need each other. You just need to pick and choose whatever you want to the assumption is this, that they're painting this picture for us. You don't need to share anymore. You have the freedom and you better exert it to watch what you want, when you want it, how you want to. The idea is that if you have to share, something is wrong with you. That's what people do in third world countries, not here. That's, ch that's changing us. I, I believe this attitude, yes, it's given us a lot of things and it is stolen a lot from us. Now, I want to be careful because I don't think it's morally wrong to structure your lives with a desire for independence. Work hard, support, for your, support your family. But if you've eliminated every need to share, even in your own home, like everybody's sitting around retreating, we don't have to share any experience anymore, then you might have structured your life that, in a way that you're practicing selfishness. You're practicing isolation. These are not gospel values. Pastor Roy Andrews told me a story last week of a group of Christians in his previous town in Washington. They decided that they all had the same 
road. They all had patches of grass that were next to each other, so share a lawnmower. It's a good idea. Instead of everybody buying a brand new lawnmower, they bought a single lawnmower. Now, you might be thinking, that is a great way to destroy friendships. And I think it probably caused some tense moments. Well, hey, I need to cut my grass today. And you have to kind of work these things out. Everybody meets in the, in the front. You have to figure these things out. But you're meeting together. You're talking. You're, you're working through tensions. You have to ask for forgiveness and you feel bad and you cut your neighbor's lawn. And is this really a bad way to, for friendships? Is, it, is this destroying friendships? I think a better way to destroy friendships is to remove any need for a friend in your life. That's a good way to kill friendships. This is what we do, this is what we lose when we never share. If we get to choose everything in our lives and share nothing, this is gonna make church life very difficult. And so again, I just wanna bring up the conversation and I want you to work this out. What steps can we take as a church to begin sharing? And no, I'm not talking about sharing your Netflix passwords. (laughs) I give you Netflix, you give me Hulu, we're good, right? I don't have a lot of answers here because I think it's gonna look different for everybody, but can we at least have the conversation? It, it seems so petty. I think it's a gospel issue. The New Testament calls us the body of Christ. Every part of the body dependent on every other part. The foot can't go at it alone. The foot needs the hand, the eyes. We need each other. I think our, we share each other's burdens. We share each other's spiritual gifts. We understand needs when we begin to wrap our lives together. Here's the final feature in verse 45 probably the most challenging for our modern context. They used their possessions to eliminate need. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I found that a lot of modern Christians, we take a couple steps back from this text because we don't know what to do with it. It's very challenging. And we'll say crazy things like, that looks like communism. And we know how communism turned out. So let's think of a better life. All right, let's think of a better way forward. Can I be just honest with you? This is nothing like communism. Communism, one commentator said it well. Communism says to you, what's yours is everybody. It drains the life out of a community. It sucks the resources out of the community. Communism requires your possessions from you. The church has a completely different attitude. Couldn't be more opposite. It says, it starts from the heart. What's mine is yours. I give it. And and as a result, the community is life-giving. It's voluntary. The apostles didn't mandate this. The spirit of God transformed them into a generous community. It was changed from their hearts. And so when the spirit empowered them, whenever they looked up and they saw a need, the spirit motivated them to meet it. It's beautiful. Now, don't think that the Jerusalem real estate market was flooded with Christian homes on the evening of Pentecost. They met in homes to eat. Some people kept the home. Sometimes we come to a text like this and the homeowners kind of slip down in the chair a little bit. You're feeling ashamed and a little bit defensive. You're like, I don't know what you're getting at. I'm not selling my house. It's okay. I'm not trying to get you to sell your home. But it seems like the selling of possessions was rare. It was voluntary. Not everybody just flooded the, the, home, the, you know, the, the, the market. And yet, let's just not miss the main point. When they saw a need, they met it, even if it required great sacrifice on their, on their, on their parts. This principle is unpacked again in chapter four, the summary statement on the next page. And so if you look at this, it says this. It's 30, 32 to 35 of chapter four. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And this is the key verse. No one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. It's a powerful statement. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed it, but their proclamation of the resurrection they gave powerful, bold witness to the resurrection is sandwiched between two instances of their generosity. They gave all that they had. They proclaimed the gospel with great power. Oh, did I mention? They gave all that they had. It's like our witness is kind of wrapped up in how we use our possessions. It is a gospel issue. If we live a stingy life, completely indifferent from our crooked generation, and all that we do is occasionally we step out and say, Jesus is alive, they're gonna say, so what? What's the difference in your life? What am I being baptized into? More stinginess? I can get that at home. It's no different. It's a gospel issue. I was thinking this morning of Jean Valjean and Les Mis. I often think of Jean Valjean. This bishop, this virtuous character, he, he had given up everything, but he had these just he called it a vice, these candlesticks and these silverware. And Jean Valjean came in, abused the man, beat him, ran out with his, candles, with his uh, silverware. You remember the story, the cops brought him back and the bishop walks to the door and he said, you forgot the candlesticks. Don't tell me possessions can't change your life. Possessions can help our proclamation of the gospel. Let us be generous and see what the Lord does. Key statements in 32. Though they had stuff, nobody said, that's mine. So I'm not telling you to go sell all your stuff and give everything to the poor, but I think this is a principle we need to take from us. I have stuff, but it's not mine. The Lord can take it, it's his. If I see a need, why don't you just have this? That's a better way for us to live as a community. I think that eliminates anxiety in our community. If we begin to learn to hold our stuff with an open hands. Now, Luke wanted to see over and over and over. I don't know how many times he says it, but he, he mentions there was no need. No, there was not a needy person. There was no need. This is the goal of the Mosaic law. When the law was given, 3,000 people died because they couldn't fulfill the law. The shepherds of Israel were fleecing the sheep. They couldn't eliminate need. When the spirit was given, 3,000 people were saved and there was not a needy soul among them. Praise God for the spirit. Let's meet needs when we see them. Again, we're gonna, be, we're gonna have a lot of challenges in our conditioned society to buy things. We've been trained for many years to find our identity in our stuff. Um, you are what you wear. A shop, therefore I am. This is, the, this is the meaning of life. Church, we gotta do better. Again, we've gotta lead the way out of this. I know we're at different places in this room and so I'll start small and then work up. What about the smallest parts? Do, do you have anybody in your life? And if you don't, I would strongly suggest you find somebody and invite them into your life that can walk into your house, open your fridge, shuffle through the stuff, find the milk, pour a glass of milk without even asking you. Is there anybody in your life like that? I had a few guys in my life like that after I graduated college and it was frustrating at first. Don't do that, it's my stuff, right? <laughs> though, they, though I had possessions, I claimed them as my own. And uh, they just kind of went in and kind of wrecked me a little bit. And it, it's not that they were being jerks. Ben Reese, I'll, I'll never forget him. Um, 
he was really challenging me, maybe frustrating me a bit until I told him one day, that's a sweet North Face sweater. And he's like, oh, you can have it. He took it off and threw it to me. I still have that sweater. If you want it, I'll give it to you. I promise. (laughs) They just didn't care about their stuff as much as I did. And you know what? That's a liberating discovery. That I have stuff, I wear stuff, but it's not mine. Somebody else is gonna wear your clothes one day. Somebody else is gonna live in your house one day. It's not yours. What about more practical needs? Have you ever been here for our buck-a-bag garage sale, yard sale? Come this year. It's in the bulletin. You can find more info. It's an incredible ministry to our community. Now, let's be clear. Acts is talking about meeting our needs first, okay? This is not selfish. This is just, if you've been baptized into this community, we got your back. The book of bag yard sale is like an advertisement to the outside world that, hey, we are a caring and loving community. And so when you bring your stuff this next month, bring your nice stuff because we want to make a good impression and we want to show the world that we love each other and that, hey, this is mine, but it's not really mine. Have you ever paid somebody else's light bill? I've heard of uh, just a small ministry, some neighbors just take, let me just take your light bill through the winter, your heat bill. That'll, that'll change a life. Do you even know if there's people in our church that have needs to pay light bills? Have you ever thought about giving a car? Um, Pastor Doug, I was actually encouraged. We have a program at our church, the the better or beater, beater or better, whatever, I don't know. We get some nice cars through there. People just like, I don't need this anymore. Doug puts new tires on and washes them up. Doug, man, it's great. Um, But he told me this week that he's given away about 30 to 40 cars in the last few years. That's a church that's meeting needs. Let's keep it up. Let's think of ways creatively that we can use our home, that we can use our land. Hey, I've got this patch of land here. You can use it for this. I'll have to get my stuff off. Can I? That's fun though. It brings us together. It encourages us. It knits us together. Let's get creative with the resources God has given to us. We're a large church. We should be able to meet a variety of needs. That's exciting. There shouldn't be needs in, in this group. Now, before we start focusing on the money and saying we've done a lot and I've given this check and the benevolence fund is healthy right now, and before we start focusing on the money, we need to remember that God doesn't care about how much you give. It's not about the amount. We're gonna find this in a couple of weeks in Mark's gospel. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. There was actually a tragic couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to manipulate and buy favor and you read it in Acts 5. God was not impressed. It's not about the money. Please remember that. It's about the heart. Are you looking for ways to meet needs? And so the text begins. Let's let's summarize the whole thing. I'm done. Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. People said, okay. They received the spirit. They were baptized. They met together. They had all things in common and they used their possession to meet needs. Look at the last verse one more time. This should not surprise us. Praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's also not forget verse 43 while I'm at it. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I think that if we can grasp these truths, they're gospel truths, if we can grasp this, I love you, I wanna be with you so that our joy may be complete. I wanna share my things with you. I want to give my stuff to meet your needs. If we can grasp this, I think, I think things begin to happen in our church. I want to leave you with this quote from Alistair Begg. I can't do the Scottish accent, but it's good. The church 
has few things of greater immediate relevance to offer the world than the secret of genuine human relationships. I love that. Let's read it again. The church has few things of greater immediate relevance that we can give the world than the secret of genuine human relationships. We're a joyful community. We're a generous community. We're a grateful community. And we are bound together. We share a soul. The spirit of God is alive among us. Let's pray. Lord, I'm deeply challenged by this text. I have been seduced, I fear, by the empty claims of the crooked generation that seeks my allegiance. I've often bound myself to this dying world, trying to get joy, trying to meet my needs out there, Lord. Here's where we find it, in your word, in your spirit, in your community. And so, Lord, would we corporately consider this text together? Would you move in us, Father? I'm excited to hear the conversations that are happening in our church as we begin to be a fellowship. It's in our name. We are a fellowship. Help us, God. We need your wisdom. We ask for your wisdom and your guidance. Don't make it about the money. It's not about the money. You own the cattle in a thousand hills. You don't, you don't need anything we have, and yet you want us to give it. So help us, God. We love you when we pray this in the wonderful saving name of Jesus. Amen.